0: But you said there are two things that the American Indian couldn't contend with. And I, and I really feel like I would like you to, to go back to that. And if you don't remember exactly what you said, I'll, I'll give you more clues. But th- that, that was powerful for me. And I think the audience should, should hear it today. What did I say? You said one was weapons or warring. You said the second was the rule of law. Yeah. And what's important to me is to go into that rule of law. What, Like why the rule of law is actually used to colonize, oppress, marginalize. Destroy, kill, all of those things. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Colorado Judicial Department. The Colorado Judicial Department assumes no responsibility or liability for any error or omission in the content of this podcast. Information provided in this podcast should not be considered to be legal advice and is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness or accuracy.
1: Beyond the Collabo Babel is now in session.
0: Beyond the Collabo Babel. Meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects and initiatives. Beyond the Collabo Babel. Keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collabo Babel. Sparking innovation, improvement and reform. Beyond the Collabo Babble, listen, learn, lead, take action, listen, learn, lead, take action, listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble, podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The stars of today's podcast are Dr. Andrew Yost and Dr. Tink Tinker. Today, we will be talking about an interesting, thought-provoking discussion titled Justice and the American Indian Worldview." I am your Babble host, Bill Delicio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Tink, Andy, good morning. Thanks for being here. I want to let the audience know this is our second take because I wasn't recording the last time we spoke. So I just want to give you so much thanks for taking time out of your schedule again to me, but good morning
2: and just for the record if i'm not brilliant today i want everyone to know i was brilliant when you weren't recording
0: you indeed were you indeed were i think i think i think you're always brilliant so i think we're in i think the audience is in luck but yes uh, and andy how about yourself how are you today
3: i'm doing really well bill thanks for uh having us on and good morning to you tink
0: all right well We can go through this again but the first question i like to ask everybody is what does beyond the collabo babble mean to you so tink why don't you go first and just share with the audience what that means to you
2: yeah i've read a little bit about the word and its usage uh uh in in collaborative uh, uh uh social justice kinds of things or justice kinds of things uh and I'm an American Indian, so we're all about collaborating, cooperating, because our cultures tend to be what I call collateral egalitarian rather than hierarchical, that up-down image schema that that is very much a part of uh, the uh, United States justice system.
0: All right. How about you, Andy?
3: So I'm still, uh, honestly sort of figuring out for myself what the concept means. Um, but I'll tell you this working on the, uh, you know, I'm, I come from a, what Dr. Tinker would call, and I think is accurate, a Euro Christian background, right? So, um, I'm non-native, I'm a white guy from Southern Ohio. Um, and so my work is within the child welfare system is, is very much emphasizes this idea of systems collaborating together. Um, But when the rubber meets the road, the question of what that actually means is a very live question. You know, when is a collaboration appropriate? What does that look like when it happens? Um, When is it inappropriate? When is it actually the the more just thing to do to actually get out of people's faces and not ask them to work with you? So for me, the question of Collabababble is getting beyond this idea of, of a discourse of platitudes of everybody, you know, arms and arm working together and instead taking seriously the differences that we face with each other and resisting, resisting the, the, the impulse to mush everything into the same.
0: Okay. Um, Tink, would you just share with the audience, you already let them know you're native, but tell, tell them about your role and your journey to doing the work that you do and just sort of frame in who you are for today's audience. So the listeners.
2: I'm a citizen of the Osage Nation and uh, a member of the Eagle Clan um, and always speak out of, uh, out of that rootedness in the world. Uh, our reservation is in today, Northeastern Oklahoma, but, but we got Northeastern Oklahoma in, in trade for all of what is today Missouri a good chunk of Kansas and a good chunk of Arkansas. So it wasn't a very good trade. <laughs> mm. uh, and I've spent the last 35 years uh, teaching at Eilf School of Theology, sharing a campus with the University of Denver, uh, doing a variety of things that come under the aegis of American Indian studies. Um uh, Teaching Indian worldview, Indian cultures, uh, justice issues, uh, covering a whole waterfront because uh, Indian studies has to be uh, fluent in a variety of discourses, including legal discourse. So th- that's what I've been doing. I'm also active with the American Indian Movement of Colorado and ran a community uh, organization called Four Winds American Indian Council, pro bono. Uh, for 25 years while I was at Isla. Uh And Four Winds is still very much a going concern, but with younger leadership today.
0: All right. Thanks, Tank. And, and Andy, how about yourself? Uh, tell us about your journey um, to this conversation today and sort of what you want the audience to know about your background.
3: Yeah, you bet. Thanks. I've already mentioned um, that I'm a Cincinnati boy, (laughs) born and bred Southern Ohio. So that's an important part of my uh, (laughs) story. That's an important part of my story for sure. Um, but in terms of kind of the deeper, more, I don't know what you would call it, existential aspects of my story, I would just sort of summarize it like this. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a home where service to other people was deeply emphasized. My dad was, um, uh, EMT, a police officer. He served in the army for a while. My mom was a career ER nurse. So it's definitely blue collar folks, but with a strong emphasis toward taking care of other people, not just our immediate family, but in our community. So I grew up, whether, whether I chose it for myself or not, I grew up uh, in an environment where service to others really mattered. But I also have always had this deep interest in philosophy uh, and the study of religion and the study of uh, other worldview views, excuse me. Um, and so as I developed professionally as a lawyer and as a philosopher and thinker, I started to try to develop a sensitivity to the limits of service and also the possibilities of service to other people. Um, and so for me as an attorney and as a philosopher, I have a PhD in the study of religion as well, um, as a JD. So for me, the, the story of my journey is a story of trying to f- bring the wisdom from my legal education and my philosophical education to bear on the work that I do in dependency law, um, particularly around court reform efforts on the state side. So I do a lot of work with the Indian Child Welfare Act and with indigenous communities in particular. And one of the things, one of the big takeaways that I'm sure we'll talk a lot about today for me is um, recognizing the inherent problems in the Western judicial system. And as a participant in that system, having been trained in that system, recognizing the limits of what I can do. And at the same time, leaving open for myself the question of whether or not I even can do anything. And this is something that Dr. Tinker and I have talked a lot about. And it's a live question for me, whether or not, you know, um, a white lawyer from Southern Ohio actually can do much by way of uh, doing right by the indigenous folks. So hopefully we'll talk more about that today.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and you and I were having a conversation over coffee a few months back and you shared this story with me. You told me about Tink and that he's your mentor and you, and you said like the word justice, the, it, the concept is not the same in the Indian worldview. And it blew my mind. This was something that never really crossed my mind. Now, over the past year, we've been talking a lot about uh, justice and I, you know, I started questioning: Is there a shared definition of justice? And and when I talked to you, I was like, there absolutely can't be a shared view of justice. It's it it means a lot of things to different people, but we use it a lot, right? Andy, you and I know each other through our work with dependency and neglect court reform. And, and 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 we talk about criminal justice reform, family justice reform, access to justice, social justice, tribal justice. Right? We, this word is thrown around all over the place, and so just a little bit like what are you hoping to impart on this audience today? And then I'll and then I'll talk with Tink a little bit about setting it up and giving us sort of his worldview or the Indian worldview from his perspective on, on really what does justice mean or doesn't mean?
3: Yeah, well, so Western philosophy is, there's a rich, rich tradition in Western philosophy around this question of justice. I mean, it goes all the way back to Plato's Republic where the central question in that work is what is justice? And without going into the nitty gritty details, uh, essentially Plato's answer is fulfilling your role. And what, but what that means is obviously there's, uh, there's a lot built into what that actually means for Plato. But we've inherited um, this, are currently we've inherited this, the Western tradition of the question of justice. And it's caught up in, in the contemporary context. It's caught up in a relationship between, uh, w- at least in the Western Euro-Christian model, the question of justice is caught up in a relationship between a state and an individual and an individual individual's rights or duties in relationship to other individuals. So justice is a lot about teasing out um, the dynamics of that relationship. And so we have, you know, ideas like fairness uh, and equity or equality or punishment and discipline. I mean, these are all super loaded terms, but that's the vocabulary of justice on the Euro Christian model. And to Dr. Tinker's point, it is metaphorically, uh, a model that works on an up-down sort of schema, right? Our obligations run up the chain to the state and the, cha- the state's obligations run down the chain to us, which I'm sure we'll hear when Dr. Tinker talks more about the uh, American Indian worldview is, is strikingly different. So for me, um, just to sort of summarize or this comment here, um, one of the primary calls of Western trained lawyers that are working with indigenous folks in the U.S is to develop a heightened sensitivity to the fundamental difference between the way we think about adjudicating conflict within our communities and the way indigenous folks conceptualize it and, and, and live it out. So I would submit, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Tinker will have comments about this as well, I would submit that the term justice probably is inappropriate when we're talking about what's going on in indigenous communities. And we need to be careful not to import that concept into our work with them.
0: All right. So Tink, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to kind of frame your, your, from your viewpoint. And um, I sent you a chart. I sent you and Andy, a chart in a, in a, an outline. It was from a national victims assistance Academy office of crime archives. It, it, it what it essentially did and, it it is, it outlined the different terms and phrases for the American justice paradigm and the Indigenous justice paradigm. And I loved your email to me when you when you took a look at it. You said you said to me, "That's a nice chart you picked up somewhere, Bill." Uh, of of course, I'll pick it apart because even the Indigenous side of the scale is articulated in thoroughgoing Euro Christian abstract language. And I was like, so excited to meet you and talk to you because like that response was unlike anything that I had really heard before. And even the phrase Euro Christian was really hitting my ears in a different way for the first time. So I just want you to kind of set this up in the way that you would like this audience to understand the Indian worldview and the word justice. Yeah.
2: You know, the chart contrasts uh, American Indian justice as one paradigm with uh, American Indian notions of justice. But the truth is, none of our Indian languages have a word for justice. It's imported from your Christian languages, English in this case, the colonialist language. And like all euro Christian languages, English is made up of highly abstract nouns. And justice is one of those utter abstractions that nobody knows what it means. Um, That's a good thing if you're an academic, because uh, you can write a 500-page book book about it and get tenure, (laughs) or or a PhD, or or, uh, uh, etc. And even if you write a 500-page book, it's just the first word, because somebody else is going to write a 600-page book and take you down and redefine it in a different way. And of course, anybody who's walked into a law library knows that the shelves are filled with books trying to parse uh, the law, trying to parse justice. (coughs) I think the main difference, if I can uh, uh, begin to unpack worldview is that American Indians uh, are, are oriented towards creating balance in the world, maintaining balance, harmony, so that if uh, there, there's something that happens in the community that disrupts balance, one of the roles of the Gaega, which white people translate chief, but it doesn't mean chief, one of the roles of the Gaega is to bring the two families together and sort out what's at stake here and how can we resolve the imbalance. Uh, eventually, I might talk about uh, uh, Ex parte Crow Dog, the Supreme Court case from May um, 1883, uh, trying to resolve uh, white people's um, sense of the irate over Crow Dog's murder of of Spotted Tail. Well, Crow Dog resolved that in an appropriate way for Xichangu Lakota's by going to the family and and, uh, making the appropriate gifts and and trying to resolve the imbalance and the tension between the two families, that was not enough for U.S. jurisprudence. And of course, the Supreme Court case was to decide whether the U.S. had any jurisdiction on Indian land, namely the Sichangu uh, Reservation, the Brule Reservation, at that point, and the Supreme Court decided no, they didn't, and it took um, a congressional piece of legislation uh, in 1885, two years later, the Major Crimes Act, to extend de facto, de jure, actually, uh, U.S. Uh, jurisdiction over Indian people. The point being, you're Christians
1: were convinced Pro-Dog had a debt to pay to society for killing this other Indian. Hey, what? In terms of Shichangu understandings, he had to
2: resolve the imbalance he created for the social whole and an imbalance with uh, Spotted Tail's family. Th- that's what needed to be resolved, not some debt to society. Uh, in English law, uh, and you all know much more about this than I do, but all crime is a crime against the king, a crime against the crown, and hence people are held accountable to some uh, standard, just as in uh, the your Christian Bible, that you're held accountable to the, the, the laws that are set forth that come from some divine mandate, That's not true in the Indian world. It's between me and that tree if I cut that tree down. If I don't do it in a respectful way, and that tree has personhood just as much as spotted tail does, if I don't do things respectfully and appropriately and talk to that tree and give the offerings I need to give before I cut down that tree, I'm liable to be building Uh, a lodge for my family that will not be safe. Uh, So that's a whole different understanding of what uh, this thing y'all call justice might be about. So balance and harmony is what it's really about for us. How do we recreate, restore balance and harmony every time we disrupt it? And that's ongoing because uh, after all, We have to eat lunch.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And if we eat lunch, we're going to eat corn, beans, squash. Those are our close relatives, the three sisters. Uh, we're, we're, We're perhaps going to eat buffalo meat. That's a close sibling, too. And we've got to restore the balance that we have disrupted by taking food from our
0: relatives. And Andy, it looks like you have, you wanted to jump in there. So go right ahead.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Bill. I just wanted to make a couple comments about some of the language that um, Dr. Tinker and I are using and um, maybe get ahead of some of the things a listener might be thinking. And if I'm wrong and I'm projecting and I apologize, but at least in the conversations that I've had with people in my own life, Mm -hmm. here's some of the things that I hear when, when they hear this conversation, some folks will say, I'm not Euro Christian. And Uh, my short answer to that is, yeah, you are, (laughs) uh, most of the you, of course, you know, of course there are indigenous folks who are, uh, who are not Euro Christian and there are indigenous folks who've grown up in a Euro Christian environment. And that's a whole different set of issues that I'm not qualified to speak to, but just to acknowledge, um, but what I'm trying to get at when I say this is the fact that you're, uh, for example, might be a secular humanist, right? You say, oh, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the big wizard in the sky or some version of that. So I'm not a Euro Christian. Um, that's, that's not what we mean when we say the word Euro Christian. What we mean is uh, you are someone who has grown up, has been a fish swimming in the water of Western liberal humanism as it has emerged out of the Western Christian tradition. So oh, cool. if you if you think things like there is one truth, um, everyone should be treated equally. Um, we have duties to each other and rights that should be respected. If you think there's such a thing as a nation state, um, you're a Euro Christian. Those are all Euro Christian ideas. So it's one of the things that I want listeners to understand is that The term Euro-Christian is is intentionally, I think, polemical. In other words, it's designed to to sort of rub you the wrong way. But in doing so, it's designed to get you to pay attention to um, the water that you're swimming in that's always already embedded in and infused with, charged with values and a worldview that you might not even be aware of. And so that's that's the power of You can be, you are, uh, you can be, let's say, a Euro-Christian without ever setting foot in any church or ever saying one prayer. The underlying idea here is that um, there are different, what I would call anthropologies, different theories of what it means to be a human person. In fact, the very question of what it means to be a human person as distinguishable from other forms of life is itself a Western philosophical concept. But I'm using this word anthropology loosely, no, recognizing that there are limits to it, just to highlight the uh, say maybe in a different way or in a, from a Western philosophical way, something similar to what Dr. Tinker just said, which is this, if someone were to ask me, Andy, as a Western lawyer working with indigenous folks, what do you think you can even do? Can you actually do anything? Or is the sort of well always already tainted for me? And I think, at the very least, what I can say is I can I can respect Indian difference. And what that means is not assuming that when I work with indigenous folks and within indigenous communities, not assuming down to the very fundamental level of what it means to be a human person, that we're saying the same thing, developing a, like a deep sensitivity to the fact that when I work with a tribe and a tribal member says we don't do it that way. That's not a trivial comment. That's not someone, that's not someone just kind of being uh, coy. Mm -hmm. They're trying, what they're trying to do, articulate is a a fundamental existential, I want to say anthropological difference that I have to, if I'm going to do anything at all in my field, I have to develop a sensitivity to that and a respect for it. Mm
0: -hmm. So Andy, like we might hear it. Oh, that's how Denver does it. We don't do that here in Montezuma County. That That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about something much deeper, much more fundamental to this person's, um, really what how they see themselves in their community. Yeah, how they see themselves as a self. Mm, as a self, okay.
2: And, and as a community, if I can jump in, mm-hmm. be, be, because uh, uh, that that's one of the radical shifts in worldview that's imposed by colonialism, both by missionaries and, and by the... You know, Westphalian states that invaded North America was to impose radical uh, Euro-Christian Renaissance individualism, the self, whereas Indian people are uh, community-ist-based. Everything is about the harmony and balance of the communal whole. So that shapes our thinking. Uh, in, in radical ways that are so different from your Christian individualism.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So so that an individual's career is not what's at stake. It's you know the good of the community. That's mm-hmm. what's at stake.
0: You know, Tink, when we talked last and we were talking about when Westerners came to this continent to colonize, you said there were two, I think this is how you put it, correct me if I'm misstating it, but you said there are two things that the, American Indian couldn't contend with. And I, and I really feel like I would like you to, to go back to that. And if you don't remember exactly what you said, I'll, I'll give you more clues. But th- that, that was powerful for me. And I think the audience should, should hear it today. What did I say? You said one was weapons or warring. You said the second was the rule of law. Yeah. And what's important to me is to go into that rule of law. What, like, why the rule of law yeah. is actually used to colonize, oppress, marginalize, yeah. destroy, kill, all of those things.
2: What I said is that there were two technologies,
4: technologies yeah.
2: that your Christians brought to this continent that were superior to technologies American Indian people had. American Indian people had great technologies. For instance, American Indian agriculture uh, feeds nearly 70% of the world today, 70% of the foodstuffs or American Indian in origin, just beginning with corn
1: and potato. But those two technologies, war-making and the rule of law,
2: were just unbeatable. See, Euro-Christians, and at this point we are, in a sense, talking about Christians, even though you're a christian doesn't suppose a religious affiliation, had spent centuries warring with one another across the European continent in the early 1600s alone. uh, Catholics and Protestants killed some 11 million of each other to determine whose interpretation of the Christian gospel was superior. Go figure that one out. And yet they called us warlike, right? When for us, a really, really deadly war is when somebody got killed,
1: one person. Uh, And the other thing that the Euro Christians brought with them was this
2: thing called the rule of law, the justice system. And hence, they were able to create rules to justify their theft of Indian land, and their killing of Indian people. They made it legally correct. To this day, it's
1: good law. You know, things like Johnson v. McIntosh, 1823. Uh, That's hard to beat. Uh, I tell my students, and,
2: and Andy may remember this, I've always defined the rule of law as they make the rules Mm.
1: and that's the law and every time we figure it out the rules get changed it's a you know a a a no-win proposition
0: Mm -hmm.
2: for us all too often
0: yeah i mean that was very powerful for me when i heard you last time and andy i'm just curious from your perspective um went to law school you you, you got involved in in, in um, work that was designed to help folks and then I'm sure at some point you you maybe had this this thought like whoa is the rule of law actually uh, a weapon as opposed to a tool to um, help and and, yeah. and I know for me you know this is a question I think the past year has brought it up in my mind a lot more but um, are these are, are we just part of one giant Will, will that just you know crushes folks and 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 is, is the rule of law kind of to Tink's point that when the rule gets changed, eh, I don't always know if it's for the better. So I mean, how do you how do you push that? Put this all together from your legal perspective. I know you you're doctor in philosophy. You also you also work on reform projects and and court improvement projects. I mean, and and you're leading the work with um, some of the the tribal uh, court improvement programs. So you know, I'm asking you to kind of tell me how that just impacts your work or how it impacted your work when you kind of maybe had the light bulb go on, like, "Oof, I need to learn more. I need to go deeper. Yeah.
3: Um, thanks for the question. Full disclosure. This is the question that keeps me up at night. Um, I do not have a satisfying answer for you. Mm. It um, it's a question that nags at me at the deepest of levels, like this might sound a little dramatic, but I'll just, it's true. So I'll sort of uh, unashamedly admit it uh, that I have a morbid side. And when I think about myself lying on my deathbed and and how I spent my time, um, I am currently troubled by the fact that I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing um, by indigenous folks through my practice of law. So I just want to admit that up front, Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a very open question for me, not only professionally, but in terms of like at the deepest level of life's meaning. So Mm -hmm. with that sort of heavy, shadow hanging over everything i'm about to say
0: well hey i just want to say i appreciate that because i think even considering the question shows that you've you've moved to a new level of thought right i mean and that's what it's going to take so i'm not saying that's the end of it but thank you for that because i think some of us need to question some of our uh, long-standing assumptions and maybe even wondering why we believe some of the things we believe because we've just taken it for granted it's in the water like you said the water is around us the one fish says to the other fish where'd all this water come from and what is the saying the other fish says what water what are you talking about like You don't even know it until you really start to think about it. So I appreciate you admitting that because that's the first step Uh, admitting you have a problem, right?
2: Let me respond to that too, Bill. Um, Yes, some of those things are just what people automatically think, unreflected, without giving it a second thought. Uh, Cognitive linguists talk about that. Most of the sentence we speak, are not thought out in terms of
1: the root metaphors that generate the target metaphors that we speak. Uh, At the same time, I've assured Andy before, and I'm going to do it again now in this podcast, American Indian people need Andy Yosts. I mean, there aren't enough of us to fight the rule of law.
2: We really have to have a variety of allies, especially those who are legally trained, but sensitive to what Indian people, Indian communities are saying back uh, to these allies. Um, It would be terrible, in my estimation, if Andy withdrew uh, from doing what he's doing with Indian people because he decided... Uh, that it's inauthentic because, Andy, you'd be leaving the field to lawyers who would step in to make money who don't have your sensitivity at all, And, and you need to hear from me. We value what you bring to the table
1: in that regard. We walk a thin line between playing the game of the rule of law and protesting the rule of law. Protesting
2: the whole process, not just uh, the process involving lawyers, but involving politicians and legislatures who actually pass these laws, um, both locally and state and and, and federally, uh, and increasingly even internationally. You know, we could argue about the U.N. Uh, uh, document, a uh, convention on on the Crime and Punishment of Genocide, I'm not happy with that document at all, uh, e- even though Indians should be happy with it. But, but it is still more the rule of law, and it still gets used uh, in bizarre ways by international lawyers to excuse colonialism, a historical genocide, by, by claiming it doesn't fit the bill uh, of the legal Daniel. You know, the Jesuitical interpretation of the document, it doesn't fit.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, maybe you need to open up your understanding of the document a little bit more and understand behind the document what people like the progenitor of the word, Raphael Lemkin, meant by genocide when he created the term uh, in the earlier in the uh, 1940s. Hmm.
0: Well, thank thank well andy um where do you want to where do you want to finish that and and thank you tink i for i agree if andy left the field we'd we'd be missing a, a really big a big champion
2: absolutely absolutely
3: well i um i am actually it's and this is a podcast so it's like hard to you know we're looking at each other now but yeah yeah people aren't looking at us and i'm just I'm having a strong emotional reaction, I think, to this conversation. And uh, I'm deeply moved by um, what Dr. Tinker just said and by the force of the question that you asked, Bill. So let me try to just give you in the audience, maybe a slightly more um, like day-to-day answer of what what it kind of looks like for me as I'm bumbling around on the Mm day-to-day as a Western trained (laughs) lawyer trying to live in this space. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So the first thing just Dr. Tinker just said, you know, walking this thin line uh, or there is a thin line walking a a line for me, that's very, that's very descriptive of the way it feels to be a lawyer in this space. Um, I feel like there are a lot of traps out there that seem to be well-intentioned traps from on the Western uh, Mm -hmm. sort of state side that I think lawyers that want to engage in the work that um, I'm engaging in have to really, really be aware of. So let me give you some examples. I'll give you four examples. The first one is um, distinguishing between American Indian law, sort of like federal law, uh, Western federal law, and and what tribes, how tribes want to um, manage, constitute, aggregate, govern themselves, whatever. I mean, all of those are Western loaded terms, but the formation of a tribe and its people and whatever shape it decides to take. So on, I'm speaking now to like sort of federal Indian law ideas. We lawyers that are working with indigenous communities, Western trained lawyers working with indigenous folks and in indigenous communities, we have to be very careful about what we count as a victory and sort of the, the darker underside of those victories. Let me give you an example. The recent McGurk case that just came down from the Supreme Holy. Court- seems like on its face, a major victory. And in some ways it is. I mean, I think that there's a sort of a sophisticated analysis here, a major victory for um, American Indian, and I'm using scare quotes right now, rights uh, or the rights of tribes. There are a number of issues that were, that were addressed in that case, but one of them was who has the power to disestablish a reservation? Is it the judiciary sort of as a common law practice, which there's historically has been this expansive scope, but, uh, that the judiciary has this really broad and uh, it's a broad net, uh, this multi-factor analysis that takes into a bunch of context um, to determine whether or not a tribe has disestablished itself. Well, the McGirt case came down recently and said, the only way in which a reservation can be disestablished is if by act of Congress. So it n- n- narrowed that, the power, the judiciary's power significantly. Well, on the one hand, that sounds like a great victory, right? Where we've limited the, the power of the, the government to impose its will on tribes, on indigenous folks. But the other side of that is Congress still has the power to disestablish reservations. That's not, that's not the full... Um, that's not the full, I don't even know what the word is for it. Um, that's not fully recognizing, and, and re- even recognition is difficult, but that's not fully um, taking into consideration or making real in a lived way Indian difference and Indian uh, identity, right? So the fact that we pointed out who in the Western Jewish judicial, uh, justice system has the power to disestablish Indian reservations is not necessarily a step in the right direction, if you get my drift. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think it is fundamentally, but you see my point. That's mm-hmm. one example. I'll make the other ones quite a uh, little briefer. Another one we've already talked about is this idea of justice, right? Throwing the word uh, justice around so everyone has a common definition of it and not appreciating the um, deep, subtle, and nuanced differences in the way that communities uh, adjudicate conflict within their, their groups. So uh, another tricky word is the word tribe, right? The word tribe is a super loaded word. Um, oh, yeah. Im- implicitly, it's it a tribe is not a state. And if you're not a state, then you don't have power, right? So there's this whole power dynamic built into the vocabulary of, of when we say the word tribal justice, we think we're saying something really powerful and progressive, but it's actually super loaded term. Um, a third example, and this happens all the time in my field, is Research, social science in research, right? We always want to like study Indian tribes. We want to study their practice. We want to study the people. And we sometimes do this, I have done it in a well meaning fashion. Like, let's go see what you're doing, Indian folks, and see if other people can learn from it. There is a long and ugly history of Western anthropologists and sociologists uh, studying Indian folks because study produces knowledge and knowledge is mastery. And so there's this whole power dynamic built into the idea of conducting research on or ostensibly with indigenous folks. So if you're working in my field on, on court reform system or court reform efforts, you need to be careful about who you're studying and how you're studying and what it means to study. Mm -hmm. My fourth and final example, um, is this idea of, and this really kind of goes to the heart of what one of the things that keeps me up at night is the idea of like working on tribal court systems. Um, hopefully now having heard what I said, you already see how problematic that term is, right? A system is a Western idea. A tribe is a Western idea. A court is a Western idea. And so it, 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 you can create in your if you're me, and this is actually how it's played out, you can create a deep neurosis in your in your own mind that at times can be paralyzing. And yet I always hear kind of the echo of Dr. Tinker's call to me um, mm-hmm. to not leave, to not bail. Mm-hmm. So that those four things, the, the example of the McGirt case, recognizing the limits of, the, of the, what the law can and can't do, the uses of terms like justice and tribe, the practice of research and study, and then paying attention to these... Sort of fundamental the fundamental differences, the metaphysical differences in the way we think about the world, um, and in, in recognizing that even good faith attempts can be dangerous.
0: Mm-hmm. And it sounds like rooted in colonization and, and genocide and racism. And so, as a Western-trained lawyer, I mean, talk talk about the, the practice of decolonization and decolonization. I can't pronounce it. Decoloniality. Yeah, decoloniality. Yeah. yeah, decoloniality, yeah.
3: Yeah, so I'll be brief because I know uh, Dr. Singer has a lot more um, to say about this than I do. So just in terms of terms, decolonization is a term that comes out of um, really kind of 20th century uh, post-colonial thought. I mean, even the word post-colonial is a little problematic because colonialism, by the way, is still happening. <laughs> but, yeah, like yeah. um So decolonization was sort of this early to mid 20th century political movement of like literally getting colonizing countries out of other countries. So North Africa, obviously East Africa, the Caribbean, uh, I mean, all over the place, right? Western, there was the age of the age of empire, the age of exploration, which by the way, was the age of colonization. Mm-hmm. So just on a, as a technical matter, decolonization literally means like getting the colony out of the land that it was embedded in. Mm. Um, And then, and there's, you know, that, that activity is still going on today as a political activity. Then there's this other term decoloniality. And of course, there's overlap between the two of them. And this distinction breaks down eventually, but decoloniality is looking at the way in which um, language, discourse, concepts operate as a form of oppression. So That's exactly what we're talking about in this conversation is heightening our attention to the practice of decoloniality, which is to identify the sort of colonial matrix of power, the language that it uses to uh, exercise its influence on the world and to actively call that out and refrain from engaging in it when, when possible. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, just by way of terms, I want to throw that out. Dr. Tinker, what would you add?
2: Well, I, I uh, disavow Mignolo's use of decoloniality. I find that to be another Euro-Christian abstraction, and I don't know what it means exactly, even though I like a lot of the things he talks about in his books and, and the uh, Mignolo and Walsh book uh, uh, most recently. I'm still in that process of decolonizing, And I'm one of those who refuses to concede decolonizing to what happened in those states, uh, now states, after World War II, who won their flag freedom. States like India, Ghana, eventually Kenya, uh, and and other states around the world, but particularly uh, in Africa. I'm much more concerned with what colonization has done to American Indians on this continent in terms of colonizing our minds and the need now to uncolonize, decolonize our thinking because we've been sucked into thinking that justice is a real Concept that we need to pay attention to and give some Indian interpretation of. The God is a real concept that we need to invent words in our languages to frame that Euro Christian notion of God. Uh, that, that, those are just the big ones, but it, come, it, it runs through all of everyday life so that when I'm at Four Winds talking to Indians, and talking about decolonizing their minds. And because it's never a lecture, we're always in conversation with one another, they'll stop me in mid-sentence and say, but Tink, that last phrase you used, isn't that colonialism? And I, yeah, I hadn't thought that through, but you're right, I might have to change that word. The, the the most recent part of my decolonizing of my mind is that I've had to weed out,
1: viciously weed out, the use of the word it. Because we don't have that word in Osage. We don't have words like thing or object. That can be
2: commodified or thingified, to use Aimé Césaire's uh, word. In fact, the things most the people, the 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 the, the people
1: most Euro Christians would call its, are for Indians people. Outside my window, there's a maple tree. That's a person. There are rabbits on the green belt in front of my townhome. Those are persons. There are two hawks that
2: live in our neighborhood, and they've just come back uh, after their, 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 their winter
1: uh, flight south. And they help thin the rabbits off the green belt
2: because that's their lunch. Those are persons. All these are people. And I wrote an essay, now 20 years ago, titled The Consciousness of Rocks, in which I argued rocks, too, are people. So I've, I'm trying to weed out the use of it completely and find other ways of, of, of articulating even my English. And that's
1: decolonizing work. In my case, it's self-decolonizing. So if I could say something
3: that might be a little bit obvious, but I think it's worth saying um, that's not my work (laughs) that the, the project of sure of Tink um, decolonizing himself and his own, and his language and and that work, it's really important. And I think it's obvious, but again, we're saying that non-indigenous folks recognize the limits of their own work. So when I sort of conceptually think about working with Tink in some ways, I think about Tink is able to, to face two directions at the same time. He faces both toward his own indigenous community um, and speaks to it. And he also faces toward my world and speaks to it both as a philosopher and as a lawyer. But for me, I'm, I'm facing toward my own world and speaking to my own world, if that makes sense. And so for me, the act, the project of decolonization and decoloniality on the Magnolo register, which is is a scholar that Dr. Tink and I that uh, uh, coined this phrase decoloniality. For me, the value in a term like that is the ability to call it out to a Western audience and uh, and sort of give them an intellectual concept that I'm recognizing that that cuts both ways to name this activity that's ongoing,
4: mm-hmm.
3: recognizing its limits. So. For me, I want to just, um, I want to, if you don't mind, I want to throw out a few ideas. I'm like, this is for me, is a live, un- unscripted conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm, some, yeah. I'm asking this question what you all think about this. When I think about myself in this weird position of, of trying to do right by indigenous tribes and folks um, as a Western trained lawyer, leaving open the possibility that it is impossible. Um, I can think of at least sort of four spaces where I try to at least do something meaningful with my time (laughs) as a lawyer. Um, Someone's paying me, so hopefully they're, you know, they're getting some value out of what I'm saying or doing. The first one is the Indian Child Welfare Act. So the Indian Child Welfare Act is, that's sort of my specialty um, in the law. It's where I spend most of my headspace as a lawyer. The Indian Child Welfare Act, long story short, is a 1978 federal statute that essentially makes it. Um, puts a a heavy burden on states to keep Indian children who are removed from care, uh, the care of their families connected to their tribes. It's a shorthand. It does a lot of things, but that's a shorthand way of sort of describing what it does. So part of what I can do is fight as hard as I can in my space to keep Indian kids with their families and tribes. And the Indian Child Welfare Act is one mechanism within my space that I try to leverage in order to do that. Um, so that's, and I, you know, I literally fly around the country and I work with different courts to help them make sure that they're applying the statute the right mm-hmm. way, um, and teach them how to apply it and what it actually, what the black letter law is, and also why it's important, which is all of the things that we've been talking about. A second way in which I try to engage in a way, in a productive way, indigenous folks is with these kind of like hybrid institutions that are federally funded, but run and populated by uh, American Indians. So for example, the, the capacity building center for tribes. So I work for one of three big federal centers, a center for state, a center for courts and a center for tribes. And our broadly speaking, our mission is to make child welfare court systems and, and state systems better. Um, and the center for tribes is dedicated to working specifically with ind- indigenous tribes to to create the systems they want to create to deal with these, um, these troublesome circumstances where children are abused and neglected. So I try to like, when I can work with those folks in a thoughtful way um, and bring to bear my skills as a, as an attorney to do that work. A third example is the tribal court improvement program, which bill you've already mentioned. So seven, there's seven tribes that get federal funding to like, essentially the invitation is, you know what do you what do you want to build here what's the what is the thing you want to build um to manage what happens when a kid get, is abused or neglected and obviously that even figuring out those terms is important so in some cases um the the invitation is really broad from the fed and and there's only seven tribes that <laughs> there's only seven of those grants there's way more uh, mm-hmm. Hundreds more tribes than there are in the U.S. So yeah. it's important to realize kind of the limits of that. Um, and, and through my partnerships with these uh, tribal court folks, some of whom are non-native that run the TCIP programs, some of whom are, we try to just, where, where they are interested in the invitation, work with them to build whatever they want to build, essentially. Um, a last example is the, and it's new, it's actually as new as in like the last month, um, the missing and murdered native American, uh, project, which has come out of, it's a network of federal organizations that are working together to really target, um, missing and murdered native Americans. There's a, there's a lot of deeply troubling data and information about real folks being going missing and being murdered, um, native Americans. So there's a, there's a new focus under the new administration around that particular issue. They've put together a public health framework, which the state is using, um, to try to address what happens when, uh, or how to prevent missing and murdered native Americans or native Americans from going missing and murdered. So my point is like all of those, all of the examples I just gave have are flawed. Mm
4: -hmm. They all
3: have deep limits. Um, some of them, I might, the jury's out for me. Some of them might end up actually being more dangerous than they are helpful. And I will, Will cut base, mm-hmm. um, but for me, if the question is, other than appreciating Indian difference, Andy, what can you do? These are the kinds of spaces that I am exploring and trying to find some possibility in. But at the end of the day, and this is sort of my last point, at the end of the day, I think the fundamental call for someone in my position is to recognize Indian difference in all of the de-
0: deep ways that we've been talking about today. Mm. Thanks, Andy. Oh, way. I, 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 the la- the, one of the last questions was ta- three takeaways or one takeaway for taking action. I feel like, Andy, you gave some takeaways there, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to cut you short. But, Tink, any takeaways for the audience of uh, Beyond the Collabo Battle? Uh, you can give three, you can give one, you can give as many as you want, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> I'm here. I have more time, but I know we, we have uh, scheduled an hour and we're running short. So I just want to let you know that. But take your time. I'm in no rush.
2: Yeah, I guess uh, I would affirm everything Andy's saying, because all of that's important. I mean, there there are laws that we have to work with. The Indian Child Welfare Act was passed because Indian nations were losing our kids. In the mid-70s, it was estimated that half of the children were being removed for one reason or another all according to the law at the time, removed by social workers for perceived home life problems you know, that, that were affecting these children. If the children were placed with grandparents, they're not with uh, birth parents, and hence they were appropriate for being removed and then being adopted out um, to uh, usually white families. That's what the Indian Child Welfare Act was responding to and what it was trying to at least slow down so that Indian nations had first call on whether that child would be placed back within the community with relatives there uh, instead of being placed with complete foreigners uh, outside of the culture, outside of the nation. That was an important law. Again, it's that tight line we're walking, trying to work the rule of law for our good, to for our benefit. Um, at the same time, it's still your Christian law. It's not Indian law, even though it's the Indian Child Welfare Act. It really is y'all's law you know, baseline, we would like to have communities where we could still generate harmony and balance in the community the way we did in the long ago before colonization in order to keep families together and healthy. And, and of course, even the notion of family then becomes, say, a bit of an abstraction because by family, Indian people... Have never meant the nuclear family. They've always meant a much larger unit of extended family that might include the whole of a village, uh, where a child might spend days on the other side of the village with relatives over there and not see birth parents. But the child's loved and being cared for, and yet it's Inconceivable to social workers that that's the case. And hence, they're primed for being removed, not just in 1978 when that law was passed, but still today in states like South Dakota. NPR had a program uh, on that uh, uh, about a decade ago showing how South Dakota was making money from federal grants in order to remove Indian kids. From their homes. Uh, So it's not done yet. There's still a lot of ICWA, Indian Child Welfare Act work to be done. And people like Andy are really critical to that process.
0: Thanks. Andy, I know you have a hard stop. You have another CIP call to to get started at 12. So I want to say so long and thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing your perspective, your experiences. We won't have time to get through getting to know the guest here today, but I think, I think we've got, we've got more to unpack. I think we have a second episode to maybe do after we uh, finish this one up in in the future, if you guys are open to getting together at some point in the future. And, and Tink, if you have a few minutes, I could do getting to know the guest with you. And then on the next podcast, we can, we can do that with Andy, if that's okay with you.
2: Sure. And let me say thank you to Andy. Uh, He's the one who set this up and, and, uh, I've already said how much I appreciate you, Andy, but thank you for, for being a part of this.
3: Yeah, thanks, Dr. Tinker. The honor, as always, is mine. Um, I mean, I just, my life is different having met you, for, and for the better. Uh, and, Bill, thanks for the opportunity. I'm always, yeah. you know, I'm always moved that you would want to hear what some Southern Ohio boy has to say. So, thanks.
0: Always, man, always. You always have something really important to say and a point of view that I think is important to change in the culture. And I think that's sort of what we're trying to do a little bit at a time, but uh, thanks. Thank you so much. And yeah, I think, I think it's, it's clear there's, there's going to be some, maybe even you guys will reflect after this, some things you want to want to share with the audience again. And and I'm, I'm totally open to it. This could even be a little series because there's so much to unpack and so important, but thank you. And, and good luck on the, the noon call you have. And um, but yeah, thanks. uh, Thanks for, for being so uh so so uh, available for this today
1: but okay. see you later talk to you andy Bye. all right tink well let's just go through getting to know the guests um
0: this is uh just a couple questions here so tell me something that surprised you about this podcast today well i'm
2: i'm always surprised because i never know what to expect Mm. Uh, unless I'm with Indian people, then I have a a better guess what to expect. Uh, I really appreciated uh, your openness and your facilitating of uh, our conversation. Um, I deeply appreciate Andy Yost, deeply appreciate what he does, and he never ceases to amaze me uh, with his own personal wrestling with these issues. So maybe that's always the big surprise for me.
0: That's a good one, yeah.
2: He says decolonizing isn't his project, but he's obviously doing the work.
4: <laughs> yeah, but I think
2: but, but But your Christian decolonizing is different from American Indian decolonizing. Mm-hmm. He can't decolonize us, but you all can decolonize yourselves. Yeah. So Which what... is harder as colonizer, because... It's like men dealing with male sexism. That's much harder than women dealing with male sexism. Mm -hmm. Because it's so much a part of our lives as men,
1: we don't even think about it. Very true. So what's your favorite place in Colorado? Wow. (laughs) Wow. I'm not going to
2: tell people because they will go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the mountains.
4: The mountains. Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right. I'm headed up there, uh, in a week with my daughter, uh, to find a, uh, uh, a campsite where we can chill out for a few days.
0: Oh, that sounds great. She
2: finishes school next week and, uh. We're going to head up and find that spot.
0: <laughs> All right. So it's sort of uh, the end of the school year for your daughter and yes, the start of the summer, summer break, huh? Yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah, she's sixth grader. Oh, wow. Soon to become a seventh grader next week.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Well, congratulations on that.
1: Where's somewhere in the world you dream of visiting one day? Oh, I don't know. There are all kinds of places I would enjoy visiting.
2: I've been to Melbourne, Australia to participate in a conference. Mm. But I didn't get up north uh, to Aboriginal lands, territories. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: I would like to have done that. Okay. Uh, I've been to... uh, Bolivia and Guatemala, which are heavily indigenous. And really enjoyed being with Indian people there. Aymara, Quechua. Uh, in Guatemala, it was Cachikel, Canopales, Mames. Uh, you know, different uh, Mayan indigenous groups. And I suppose there are other indigenous groups I would love to visit throughout Latin America. Uh, Indian nations Mm -hmm. that are our close relatives that we just don't get a chance to see very often. Okay.
1: What is your perfect meal? Uh, Corn squash and beans. Mm. With, uh, I would say, uh,
2: a little real meat Added to it, not not cow meat. That's not real. Okay. But but real meat, and uh, for some people, that's buffalo. Uh-huh. Uh, my daughter is buffalo clan, so we do not eat buffalo in my home. Okay. So uh, probably elk or deer meat. Okay. Uh, when I feed her that, she really likes it.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Final question,
1: Tink what is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue well that's a
2: tough one but but i, I would say that process of decolonizing
1: my mind uh Indian people have been so deeply colonized that we've adopted
2: Euro-Christian uh, thought forms and 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 uh, metaphors that don't really work in our own languages. So you hear Indian people all the time talking about Creator. You know, they're asked to pray. and say Creator.
1: You know, thinking that's more Indian than saying God. Mm. Uh, it's not. So I I wrote an essay uh, at the invitation
2: of my mentor, Vine Deloria Jr., a famous uh, Indian scholar and lawyer, uh, taught at the law school uh, in Arizona, for instance, and and, uh, I actually got the chance to co-teach a law school class at Boulder with Vindelaria, uh, on the freedom of religion uh, cases. Uh, What he invited me to write was an essay investigating the concept of God in native languages. And it resulted in an essay titled, Why I Don't
1: Believe in a Creator. And I'll just give you one for instance. Mm -hmm. In the Seneca creation
2: story, uh, my colleague at the University of Toledo,
1: Barbara Alice Mann, argues uh, that there are four different creators in the Seneca creation story, her people. Two women and two men. And even in the Osage, I would pray, Creator, even though I knew it was wrong, because I was taught
2: decades ago by my great uncle Sylvester Tinker: "You always start with Wakonda Monchita Ski Wakonda Utseta,
1: the Wakonda above and the Wakonda below, grandfather and grandmother. You have to have that." pair, in a reciprocal dualism. So
2: I, I had to go through that discovery process that I could not any longer believe in a creator that is a high God, that is a hierarchy, mm. up-down
1: image schema, with God up here and the people down here. Because we walk on the earth, that's our mother. Mm.
2: That's just as important as the sky. It's the sky and
1: earth coming together that makes a home and creates all of life. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That was beautiful. And um, I just want to
0: extend just how much thanks I have for you taking the time out to join the podcast and share your wisdom and um, helping us get a better understanding of maybe what justice is or is not and what the Indian worldview is. And, um, it's just been such a pleasure to listen to you. Um, and, uh, I hope we can do this again. I I think there's
2: up for it. I'm up for it. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, Hey Andy, I, I know in the episode, uh, we said that you had a hard break and you had to leave, but, um, we were able to reconnect a few days later. And so I wanted to add this to the recording. So are you ready to answer the questions of getting to know the guests?
3: Yeah, I'll do my best.
0: All right. Well, first one is tell me something that surprised you about this podcast a few days ago.
3: Um, in some ways what surprised me was my own reaction to the conversation. I mean, that might sound a little bit silly to say, but because I'm engaged in that kind of conversation pretty frequently, actually, but I'm always like, uh, uh, I always feel like I walk away with uh, a new set of discoveries that deepen my own appreciation of the work that I'm doing. As I mentioned during our conversation, um, I feel this constant kind of dis-ease or uneasiness about my own professional capacity to do the work, but not to the point where it's an obstacle. I mean, I still show up on Monday, right? And I'm still doing what I'm doing. So I guess what has surprised me in the past and continues to surprise me is number one, the richness that the conversation offers, and it's and number two, its ability to constantly deliver like new discoveries for me to integrate in my own professional and personal approach.
0: All right, what is your favorite place in Colorado or thing about Colorado?
3: Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'll take the first one just because okay. it's a little fun. The Ute Trail. Um, okay. So there's a trail in Rocky, what is now Rocky Mountain National Park, which was a trail used by um a number of different ute tribes to traverse the rocky mountains from one during this across the season so okay. they would live on the eastern um side of the of the trail for part of the year and then they would migrate to the western side of the trail part of the year. so this is a trail that goes that that literally cuts over the rocky mountains um that was worn by Ute tribes you know over centuries it's a stunning stunning place it's Above treeline, so it was well above eleven thousand feet. It's rolling, you know, just beautiful crystalline tundra as far as you can see. And you're literally walking in the footsteps um, of the indigenous folks who have been here for you know time
0: immemorial. So it's a wonderful place. And you said that's in the Rocky Mountain it's National in Rocky Park. Mountain
3: national, yeah, it's in the it's in the national park right now. So if you drive up Trail Ridge Highway, um it's about mm, maybe a mile and a half before you get to the there's like a little Rest area up there. We get a cup of coffee and use the restroom. Yeah, um, it's the highest paved road in the lower 48 states, by the way. Trail Ridge Highway is so about okay. a mile or two before the very top. On the left-hand side, there's just a small plaque that says "You Trail," and you'll see a small worn foot trail that runs all the way over the mountains. You can you can do let's take a day hike and like it's like eight miles maybe. Oh, if okay. You start at the, if you start at the top and go downhill, it's a pretty easy eight miles actually. Oh, okay. Uh, if you start at the bottom and go up. Um, yeah. You might need a little bit more, <laughs> more time.
0: Above treeline, yeah. Oh, I've never done that trail, but I'm 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 curious to try it out maybe this summer then.
3: Um, Let me know. Dude, I'll go up there with you.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Where is somewhere in the world you dream of visiting one day? Mm, can it be someplace I've
3: gone but want to go back to?
0: Absolutely. Okay.
3: So I studied briefly in India um, in Varanasi, which is if I could make a loose analogy, it's sort of like the Mecca, what Mecca is to Islam, Varanasi is to Hinduism, or what Jerusalem is to Christianity, Varanasi mm-hmm. is to mm-hmm. Hinduism. Um, when you see pictures of India, often you see the river Ganges running through a city with these steps that kind of run down and sometimes there's fire, funeral pyres burning. So that's Varanasi. I mean, there are other cities that have a similar look, but Varanasi is the holy the city. It's called the Axis Mundi, the, the, um, that's a Latin phrase that's used in religious studies to describe a, a space in the cosmos around which all of the other things that exist turn and revolve. Um, and so I went there in the early two thousands cause I was studying Hinduism and, um, it just it changed my life being oh, there. Okay. And, uh, now I'm, it's been roughly, I don't know, 15 years since I've been, you know, I've done a little bit more thinking, have written a little bit, and I would like to go back there with um, the eyes that I have now and see those things and think about them some
0: more. All right. That's very interesting. And um, what's your perfect meal?
3: Oh, that's easy. That's easy. This is um, 20 chicken wings, deep fried four different sauces. I'll tell you what they are. One of them is definitely uh, jam and jalapeno. Okay. And it's the fourth quarter it's Bengal Steelers. Uh, I'm eating the last chicken wing and we're, you know, just dropped a 60 yard bomb to Jamar uh, Chase for the touchdown.
0: Okay. All right. We're already visualizing season, uh, this season coming up in the fall. Yeah. And, all right. And last question What is something you believed for a long time that you later found
1: to be untrue? Hmm. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Um, I'm going to get deep with you. If you want to, if you decide
3: you want to cut this one out, you can.
0: No, let's get deep.
3: Okay. So, um, I'm Catholic. I grew up Calvinist and there was a big gap about 20 years between me leaving Calvinism and me finding Catholicism. By the way, I don't think Catholicism is for everybody. I don't think everybody needs to be Catholic. I don't think it's the one capital T truth, any of that. Mm -hmm. So the big thing I used to think was that God was a big wizard in the sky. Um, and sort of the grand metaphysical puppeteer Mm -hmm. and all of the problems that go along with that problem of evil and blah, 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 blah. Um, I now, I now start with the idea that God is love. Um, which is, I mean, it's, that's a direct line. First John four, eight out of the, out of the Bible. But more importantly, I see, um, the religious form of life as a form of life dedicated to taking seriously our encounter with the other, with other Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that's a fundamental shift from thinking about God in terms of these like sort of, you know, metaphysical maps, you know, what's Mm -hmm. God like, does God Mm -hmm. have a big pointy hat, whatever, to thinking about the religious life as a form of life, which is love and action. So that's kind of deep. We could talk more about it. I actually wrote a book about it if you want. It's called The Amherst Imagination. Okay. Uh, But that's the short, that's the short answer of my deep answer.
0: All right. Well, I mean, hopefully folks, uh. Maybe you'll take a look at that book, but uh, that sounds interesting. i would never heard of that one before. Um, well, thanks again for joining the podcast. I, I think this conversation that we had earlier this week probably will follow up on at some point in the future. And uh, I think this is a good stopping point, but look forward to that next, uh, next episode, maybe.
3: Great. Thanks, man. And I look forward to uh, hiking the Rockies with you.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab about Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take listen, action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, action. learn listen, Larry, lead. action. listen, learn, learn take, listen, take action.